proclaiming a kingdom and talking about a king. Matthew 4 records sort of the start of his public ministry. It says, He began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The story of the Bible is this, that the living God sent His Son to live amongst us and declare something different than long live the king. Rather, it was this right here. Live long with the king. That's the message of Jesus, right? That there's this king eternal, and that we get to live with him and be a part of his kingdom. This is the good news of the Bible. It's the central story of what the Bible's talking about when you kind of boil things down. And Jesus left no mistake as to how to get in on living long with this king. He spells it out for us. I want everyone to do something with me uh, for just a moment. I want you to take a breath in, a nice deep breath, and just kind of hold it there for a moment. Okay, here we go. And just let it out. When we walk into church... When we bow our heads to pray before a meal, when we open the Bible and pray, God, would you speak to me through your word? I want you to remember there is a being right now who lives in unapproachable light that if we were to see him in our mortal bodies, we would die. And it's by his grace and by his design that you were able to take a breath in, hold it, and take another one. None of us in this room are entitled to make it through this sermon. It's sheer gift that God has gifted you to wake up this morning, find your way to a car somehow, or maybe walk, find your way in this building, and be living right now. That's the gift of the one who created, designed, and sustains life. What happens is breathing and living becomes so normal, so routine, we forget these things. We begin to think that because we've had 40 years of breathing, that we're entitled to several more. When really it's just sheer gift that's been giving, given to you. If you have not pondered death in a while, uh, maybe you should attend more funerals. Um, I don't know, maybe you're not a, maybe you're not invited to many funerals. Um, I don't know how many people do this, but maybe you should become a funeral crasher. You should go and spend some time around funerals because it may be healthy for you. It may be good for you. It's pretty fascinating if you think about it that 10 out of 10 people die and yet no one really wants to talk about it, right? Um, there's this ongoing sort of lingering thing in the air. It's like we're all in this line and person after person takes a step over a cliff and is never seen again, and you're in this line, and at some point between birth and now, it has dawned on you. Is there any way to get out of this line? I don't, I don't know if I want to be in this line. When we're confronted with death, we're confronted with a whole bunch of questions. Sometimes we joke about it. Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Some cultures have a holiday for it. I was, um, between my fifth and sixth grade summer, I went down for six weeks to live with my grandparents. They lived in San Miguel de Allende, which is a city about two hours northeast of Mexico City. 
So here I was with my uh, English-speaking brother, my English-speaking cousin, and the three of us embarked on this adventure to go down for the summer. And my grandma meets us in Mexico City. We drive for two hours. We show up in, this, in, the, in the town center called the plaza. And right there, we pull up, and there's this massive church in the center of town. It's this quaint little town with cobblestone streets. And I pull up, and there's a parade. Yippee, a parade to honor the dead. It's a, it's a terrible parade. It's not that kind of parade that I wanted. So here we are on the side of this parade route. And no joke, Frankenstein comes walking down um, the, the thing. There's people just dressed in all these morbid things. It was Dia de los Muertos. It's a parade celebrating a, sort of the honoring of past dead people. And my grandma, the only English-speaking person, my only connection to Mexico, were minutes into showing up in a foreign country or in, in this city. And she goes dancing off with Frankenstein. And I'm left on the parade route looking like this, going like... I mean, I thought I was being punked long before being punked was even a thing. I mean, we were sitting there, and it felt like an hour. It was probably only a few minutes, but but there goes Grandma off to 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 go dance with Frankenstein down the parade. You know, we we joke about death. We um we celebrate it in some ways, um, but but the reality is there's a mystery to it, and there's a finality to it that scares us. It frightens us. I was thinking about the difference between myself and a mortician. A mortician prepares bodies after death. As a pastor, I prepare people before death. It's an odd part of a pastor's calling. A part of my role here is to prepare people to die well. And I don't mean somehow with grace or at that final moment. I'm talking about living so that you're prepared to die. So how on earth am I supposed to do that? Here it is. I am going to boldly declare to you today four truths that will dispel some of the myths that you might be believing about death. As a Christian, it's possible to take on culture's beliefs about things without even knowing it. We ought to be thinking different. We have different truths, but it's easy to get sort of roped into things that we don't really believe in. We're in this series called Now and Later Life. It's a short letter that Paul wrote to this church that he planted. And Paul is celebrating and instructing new believers on how to live in the in the present while simultaneously pointing to the future realities um, that are going to happen. There's sort of this now and not yet approach. And what's what's funny about the Bible is you see now and not yet woven through all of Scripture's. There's some prophecies that had truth that kind of came true then, but there was a future greater reality that it was pointing to, right? There are things that we see in the Old Testament that now that we know the whole story, or at least more of the story, we're able to say, wow, that really pointed, that Passover celebration really pointed to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, sacrificing his life for the people. Um, I want to just bring up some family business here for a moment. Um, is it just me, or are there less in this tub than than there were at the start of this series? Now, I didn't even know this, but I, I just felt this lid. This lid is off. Um, I want you to know, we actually have security cameras that we that we pointed at the jar at the very start of this series. At the end, we're going to make a little compilation, um, and the whole, you know, getting your, your, your hand caught in the now and later jar, it's going to come true for you. It's going to be a little depiction of just the fact that we'll all give an account for our actions on earth one day. Um, 
I cannot really verify that the number that was in there at the start of the series is the number that the winner of this contest is going to get. Um, oh, by the way, I need someone to eat one of these. Who's, who's willing to eat one of these? There we go. I knew someone would. That's a terrible throw. Eat it anyways. Um, while he chews on that, it's going to remind us this. Death and afterlife, like this now and later, that he's going to chew on for the next probably 16 minutes. The first five is just softening it enough, I think, to not hurt your teeth. Um, but there's just there's lots to chew on when it comes to to, to death and afterlife. We've uh, we've been pointing out some some themes too. Here's here's a giant theme that leaps out of the passage today. The dead in Christ are really alive. Isn't that good news? The dead in Christ are really alive. And then secondly, watch for Jesus' return. Watch for those two themes that are actually woven to other parts of this letter. They're going to just absolutely leap out to us. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 12 to the end of the, of the chapter. Uh, actually, starting verse 13. It says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You're not alive for long before you start asking questions about death. When someone that you love dies, it hits close to home, and all of a sudden questions about the afterlife become far more pointed than some luxury that if you have time, you'll discuss it and think about it. It becomes a pressing matter. Death and afterlife cry out for a solution. Think about the different uh, disciplines that have tried to tackle it, philosophy and science and religion. They all try to deal with it. When I think about uh, the ancients, I've been doing some study on how the ancients would have viewed death and thought about death. They were just as lost and just as confused and just as looking for answers as people are today. Today I want to boldly tell you four truths to the common lies that people believe. Here's number one. If you're following along, you can jot these down. Number one is that people think the only way to know what happens after someone dies is to guess, when actually it's already been told. Like all other matters of life, I, as a Christian, trust God's revelation over human speculation. I depend on God to tell me how to do things over just guessing about it. That's what it means when, when you make Jesus Christ your Lord. You are submitting your ways to Him. So think about it. How does marriage work? What am I supposed to do in conflict? What should I aspire to? How should I handle slackers that are in my life? What do I do with pent-up anger, past hurt, that hard-to-love neighbor? These are themes we've just looked at in First Thessalonians. We go to God who's revealed how to live life. We don't rely on human speculation. One of the absolute miracles of the Bible is its utter breadth of subject matter. 
It gives us instruction for how not only to live life, how to control our bodies, how we're supposed to think in light of our bodies, what is the soul and the body, how do those interact, but also it teaches us about death and what happens after death. Here are some summaries. Jesus is coming. You will be just fine, and you have a really important meeting with him. Those are some of the things that we're taught from the scriptures. God did what we do when something is super, super important. He put it in writing. It's called the Bible, right? And so the Holy Spirit, literally, God breathed messages out through human beings to write the Holy Scriptures. And so that's why you can take the miracle of the Bible and say, wow, not only does it cover a lot of topics, there's unity and agreement in it. I have put something in my pocket before I started the message, and I need a few people to guess what it is. So I want a few people to raise your hand and guess what is in my pocket. Gria, a pen, a lighter, lint. That sounds like you would say that. Laura, the other now and laters. No, it's not that. The ring of power. No, less. A quarter. Ruth, a penny. Okay, I need, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Heather. My wallet. Okay, let's stop there. So, um, so one of you is absolutely right. Okay, Lint. <laughs> um, some some of you, so many gave guests. I'm very very impressed by that. You guys are very responsive. I like that. Um, so I don't know. Let's say there were ten responses there. Okay, um, for for one of you, who 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 thinks they're right? Okay, we have several. Okay, that's confusing. Um, I want you I want you to stand up if you would um, if you would risk. Uh, the pink slip to your car on being right about this. Okay. Okay. Now stay, stay, stay standing for, for one second, James. Um, in this room, the, the many who gave answers, um, no one else stood up to this. That's actually a really high standard that I just put. James has a lot of trust. Um, so, so the rest of you could think in your mind right now how arrogant to think that, that James is right when Gria could think just as much, I think I'm right. The reason James is standing right now is that before the service, um, I went to James and I told him something. I realized as I've asked this question, um, yes. I, <laughs> I, I never, I never showed this to him. So here, here's what's actually really interesting. Um, he didn't have empirical, veri- verifiable proof. He didn't watch me take this card, put it in my pocket, and then keep an eye on me to make sure it would still be in there. You can sit down, James. Thank you very much. Okay, yeah. Um, so, so actually, that was even a, a stronger test, but it's actually more true to life of the way that we experience life with God. James... Um, factored in knowledge of me, and he took me at my word that, that that's what was going to happen. I told him, in no uncertain terms, that's what's going to happen. I will have that in my pocket. I want you to guess that. 
The reason James could know that and the rest of you couldn't is all the rest of you absolutely knew it was a shot in the dark, right? It was human speculation. What, what might Dave put in his pocket? Plus, you were like, I don't want the speaker to feel awkward, so I'll play along. And so you threw an answer out, right? And if you're weird, you make it Lind because you're Brian Jackson. Or the, or, the, or the ring of power. Were you ring of power, too? Okay, because that could have been you as well. That, that could have been you. Okay. So that, that all fits. Um, as Christians, we, we, we are accused of being arrogant. Here's being arrogant, because how can you know when, when every guess is the same? It's all just human speculation. Does this sound familiar at all? I hope it does. I hope it does, because that means as a Christian, you're being bold in your faith, and you're saying, you're, you're making assertions about things. James took everything that he knows about me. He put his pink slip on the line. Thank you, James, for the trust of that. I wasn't going to let you down. But he knew what was in my pocket. Why? Because I told him. I told him very specifically, here's what's going to be in my pocket. The rest of you, you, you couldn't have possibly guessed at that. Uh, I suppose there was a chance you could have gotten some, some of that right. You wouldn't have known probably the specific player, right? That's how divine revelation works. God's been doing this for a long time. Certain mysteries are being revealed slowly over time. I read Albert Einstein's autobiography earlier in the year, and it's pretty fascinating to see that the way that God is just loud, turn of the century, this last century, man, there was a lot of discovery that went on through science, right, and through observation and through facts, and trying to piece together a reasonable universe, right? So there are mysteries that are slowly being discovered over time through our experiences, through science, through observation, right? But there are other mysteries we can't possibly know unless God tells us. Some of those he's just held back, and we won't ever know. Some of those he has chosen to reveal to us. He has to reveal to us because we wouldn't know it otherwise. He's been doing this for a really, really long time. Um, Rob and I are following a similar reading plan. Right now, uh, we are in the book of Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, it says this. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed and established it, the Lord is his name. Do you hear his credentials? This is who's talking. Part of why I wanted us to hold our breath for a moment is to stop and remind ourselves God's ways are higher than our ways. He formed the earth. He established it. He allows life to go on because of the 23-degree axis, because of our distance from the sun, because of the amount of oxygen and, and all of that. It's all held together by Him. That's who's speaking. Then it goes on to say what He says. He says, Call to me and I will answer you. Catch this and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. All through the Old Testament, it's backing up what we see culminating in Christ. That is, that, that God is sending prophets to tell you what's really going on, because we're missing it. He's revealing truth. That's Jeremiah 33, 2, by the way, if you want to check it out. The Bible is God's revelation. The Bible is... True. Therefore, logically, anything that counters the Bible is necessarily false. That is my assertion. Now, if I'm wrong on this, and someone else's book is right, and it counters the Bible, those can't both be right, right? These are the basic laws of reason. Here's an example of that. The Quran affirms Jesus, but denies the resurrection. 
The Bible puts the resurrection, that is Jesus dying, actually dying, and rising from the dead. He, the Bible puts that front and center as the primary linchpin to the whole thing. Do you see how those both cannot be right? The Bible is true, is what I'm saying. Necessarily, anything that counters the Bible is false. I want us as a church, I want you as a person, not to grow into the, the growing, not to buy into the growing pile of self-refuting statements that people spout all the time when it comes to these things. Go back in your mind to the pocket and Colin Ka- Kaepernick football card, okay? When you assert that the Bible is true, it comes off as arrogant in our culture for a few different reasons. But here's what people will say to you. Truth can't be known. I hope your brain is trained to see that that is standing on nothing. That is, that is a statement standing on midair. Here's the response to that. Um, do you know that to be true? Because if so, what's the problem? That truth can be known, right? Here's another one that I hear all the time. There are no absolute truths. What's the response that ought to come to your mind? Yeah. Are you absolutely tr- certain that that is true? Right? Because all of a sudden, you have a statement that can't live up to its own statement. Here's another one that I'm certain that you've heard. Well, that's true for you, but not for me. Let's play the game. What should jump into your mind about this statement? Why is that self-refuting? How should you respond to that? What's that? Truth is irrelevant of a perspective. I would agree with that statement. Here's how you could use their own terminology. Is the truth of your statement that you just said to me, is that true just for you and not for me? Right? So on and on and on, this this game goes on. What people do with this is they sidestep really looking at the facts. Facts get annoying for people, so we hold on to things that we believe in. and, And so these things kind of butt up against it. Dribble that doesn't stand up to its own standard is just that. It's dribble. Another one that you will be accused of as a Christian in this culture, I guarantee it is this, that Christians take everything on faith. Nonsense. Nonsense. That is utterly offensive to me as a Christian. Like I've just written off my brain and I just take things at faith. How naive do you think I am? Here's what faith is. Faith is things that bridge things you know to be true, things you know to be true, and those gaps in between, right? Every single worldview that you could possibly dream up is a worldview mixed with things known and things unknown. Every worldview contains faith components. I'm reading an excellent little book right now by an apologist, and it says it's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Here's his basic premise. There are more faith leaps to believing that there is not an intelligent designer to the universe at the macro level and to the, to the little cells at, at the micro level um, than, than there's, there's bigger leaps of faith with that than there are from the Christian worldview. It's a, it's a, simple, it's a simple thing. Then let's just look at, at who's doing. It's not a matter of faith versus science, which we often hear. It's a matter of good science versus bad science. I bring these things up because of this. We have a faith. We have a worldview. We have a book that instructs us to look at evidence. It demands of us that we use our God-giving faculties of reason and logic. Look at verse 13 in our text. 
I don't want you to be uninformed. Right in our text today about what goes on after death is this statement. Don't be ignorant. Don't just take things by faith. I don't want you to be uninformed. Look at verse 15. He says that he declares to you, the the Thessalonians, by the word of the Lord. If someone is claiming to speak for God, we ought to test that out. We ought to look at that and say, is that true or not? Look back up at verse 8 of our same chapter, of chapter 4, uh, talking on sexuality and controlling your body. He writes this, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. This is God writing through me. This is not my word. God is revealing this to me, and it's true. If I said that, that uh, if, if James said that I absolutely have this to be true, and, and I didn't have this on my person, we could somehow test that, he would be called a false prophet. He's claiming to speak things that were revealed to him, and they weren't. That happens all the time as well, and still does happen. God does not leave us clueless on his character, on the nature of man, on the effects of sin, nor what happens to us when we die. So this question might arise. Why then, if the Bible's clear on some things, why is there still so much fighting and confusion about the afterlife, even amongst Christians? I've got a couple of thoughts. One is this, that revelation happened um, not all at once, but gradual. Right. So as you read the Bible chronologically and think about what was given at which season, there were different there were different revelations given at different seasons. So, for instance, you could read portions of the of Ecclesiastes and come to an an annihilationist view that we just don't exist after the grave. There are passages found in Ecclesiastes that, that you would read and say, I guess that's what the Bible says about that. Is that the end matter of what happens after we die from the Bible? Of course not. If you take little bits of the Bible out of context and you begin to study it, you know what you have? A cult. That, that's what you have. You have heresy. So, so the Bible was, was revealed um, gradually. Here's secondly. It's not only gradual, but it was progressive. In other words, there's a flow from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So think about Jesus and how he was revealed. It culminates with Jesus being this, the one who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's 2 Timothy 1.10. What an encouraging verse. The key to understanding with these things is shown in a time I had at Heathrow Airport. I'm going through screening at Heathrow Airport. We're coming home with Eli. And... Um, and there's just hordes of people. I have a limited amount of time to catch this international flight and make it home. I just want to get home. You guys have been there too, I'm sure. And the only two people out of this massive line, the only two people who were yanked out of line for special screening were me and another mom with diaper bags. So every bit of my carefully packed bag that had everything I needed for this you know, 24-hour journey with Eli um, who had some health issues, was, was now laid out and inspected and looked at. Now, now this didn't happen. Um, but what if while they were screening the very suspicious-looking parents with verifiable children there with them and all of that, what if they were looking through all of my, my stuff, which they have every <coughs> right to do, and what if while that was happening, there was a small army 
walking, walking through and going around the metal detectors. They had the rocket-propelled grenade things on their shoulder, right? And the whole TSA team, I don't know what you call it in England, but we'll call it TSA. The whole TSA team is around, gathered around the other mom and I. The other mom and I are sitting there going, are you kidding me? Like, like we are, I guess, the most suspicious-looking people here. And an entire army kind of walks through. You know what Jesus calls that? He calls that swallowing camels while you're straining out gnats. Pharisees were famous for this. They would go and they would argue the tiny fine points of the law and miss the point completely. What happens sometimes with eschatology, that is theology parts that discuss end times things, is people go down and drill down and argue these finer points about when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, all the minute details, and they miss the point. The point is Jesus is coming back. The point is you're going to be okay. The point is live your life in that reality. If you get away from that, it leads to all kinds of, of, I believe, dishonoring argument and conversation. Paul wrote this letter to his friends at this church that he started, and they, like us, were concerned. What happens to people who are dead? Do they somehow miss out on the resurrection? When, how is this going to take place? When is this going to take place? And so he's writing them to encourage them. I want you in your small group times this, this week, and I know some of ours are dormant, so just do this as a family. Read. I would challenge you to read the entire letter from start to finish in one sitting. I did that again this week, and what I was reminded of is this. The letter is so filled with warm, encouraging things, just, just talking about courage, that when it gets to end times things, he's not shifting gears and turning into end times Jesus nerd. That's not what he's doing. He's doing it to encourage them, to comfort them. These are real people who, have, who are going to real funerals, who have real questions, just like us. And so it's written not to satisfy all of our curiosity. Here's, here's lie number two that people believe. People think that death is unbeatable, but really it has been conquered. Death and taxes, am I right? Things you can't get out of. We can't get out of this line. We don't know how to do it. Look at verse 13. He says, about those who are asleep, is how ESV translates it. Look at verse 14. Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Look at verse 16. It says, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Here are two things Paul is driving home to the Thessalonians and to us. Here it is. One is this. The dead are only sleeping, and Jesus has the final authority on death. Is this good news? Absolutely it is. The dead in Christ are just asleep, and Jesus has the final authority on death. It's been conquered. It's not unbeatable. Jesus had this way of ruining perfectly good funerals. Turning your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, we'll read about a different one, but at a different time, Jesus shows up and he declares in the middle of the funeral to all the people crying that they're confused. He says, the girl's not dead, she's merely asleep. And what happened is there were sort of professional criers that would be hired to kind of, they're sort of the laugh track, you know, of a funeral, right? Come and cry for us and make it extra sad. Well, then they burst out laughing. They burst out laughing at Jesus' assertion that she is merely asleep. And then he goes and wakes her. When you read the scriptures, if Jesus is who he says he is, what you understand is this. He didn't see death as this huge obstacle, this huge fearful obstacle 
that we often portray it to be, even in Christian circles. People can wake other people, but we're powerless to wake the dead. Jesus woke the dead as if he was waking people up. It's as easy for him to wake the dead as it is for us to go and wake people up. Why? Because death has been conquered. I told you to turn to John. Let me get there. Lazarus. Once again, there's utter confusion with the disciples as to what's really going and and what the reversal that's offered by Jesus really is. Look down at verse 11 of chapter 11. It says, After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. There's the language again. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Don't you love sort of the fog of the disciples? I mean, I really do relate to them, and I say, wow, it's so thrilling that they are included in the scriptures in those ways. Now look down at verse 43. In verse verse 43, Jesus goes to Lazarus, to where Lazarus has been laid, and it says this, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the same picture of death that we're getting in 1 Thessalonians. Sleep, And this unbinding, right? This authority to come and say, you're no longer bound by the grave. Get out of that cave. You're no longer bound in these dead clothes. Get get those off of him. Unbind him. Release him. The dead in Christ are really asleep. Jesus has the final authority over death. You know what's great news? Look back in our passage now. Verse 13, Paul uses the word sleep both times when he's talking about believers. He uses a word for sleep, like actual sleep. Then when you contrast that to verse 14, he uses a different word. And you know what the word means? Dead. You know who he uses dead for? Is Jesus. So when he's talking about believers, he uses a word for sleep. When he talks about the word death for Jesus, uh, he uses the word actual death. This is great news. This is theological teaching. Here's why. Because Jesus tasted the bitter taste of of death... um, and was separated, we don't have to. Since Jesus robbed the grave of its power, mystique, and chains, we walk out as well. We are unbound and free. Friends, this is the Christian reality. The end is not really the end. The Son, Jesus Christ, had to be left by the Father at death. Why? Because He took on sin. Holiness can't have fellowship with unholiness. So for the first time in all eternity of this King Eternal that we just talked about, there was separation on the cross. Jesus no longer in the perfect communion with his Father. Because Jesus was separated and left alone, bearing the weight of the guilt of the punishment of the sins of the world, we don't have to ever be alone. 
Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. What can separate us from the love of God? Can death do it? Absolutely not. You're never left alone now. Why? Because Jesus was left alone. These are the theological implications. These are what, these are what come of these truths that we know and hold so dearly. This is why they're so meaningful to us. This is why you can watch and marvel at peace that comes over some people who as they transition from death, from, from death into life after death, there's peace. There's utter peace. It's Father's Day, and of course I'm thinking about my dad, and many of you know my father passed away a few years ago. I thought about my dad. You know, my dad did not need a visit from his pastor's son so that he could have assurance of his salvation, which is a common thing. Let's get a pastor here and make sure this person's saved. The, the, the dying person might request that. The family might request that. He also didn't need his pastor's son to come and comfort him that it was going to be okay. In fact, what happened was quite the opposite. I went away from that season of life watching my dad die in this life. I went away more assured than ever of the things I hold true. I went away having been given peace and comfort that my dad is just fine. If you've ever been there at the very moment when someone's soul leaves their body, when they take their last breath, it is a striking reality to go, wow, there, we are more than, what, than, than the chemicals that we're, that we're made of. We're more than what you can measure on a scale. And it becomes crystal clear when you're in that moment. The next time that you pass a cemetery, remember that that word means a sleeping place. It is a dormitory where sleeping bodies are waiting for the resurrection. We passed a dormitory on Friday. And so I let Becky know that. I said, that, that, that's a sleeping place right there. Isn't that crazy? Like it's crazy to think that, that there, are, there are bodies that will be resurrected. We'll get to how they're resurrected in just a moment. Knowing that the dead in Christ are merely sleeping is a huge comfort, but so is the promised reunion. Here's the third lie people believe. People think that death is the same for everyone, but actually it will be shockingly different. It will either be the best day or worst day of your existence. Whether you are dead or alive, Christian, when Jesus comes back, you will meet him. Here's the key. Are you in Christ? Look at our passage once again. Paul is clearly making a distinction between two kinds of people. Verse 12 that we looked at last week, he says, So that you, that's one kind of person, might walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Remember that? Mind your own business. Work hard as God's instructed you to. Don't be a slacker. And you will be a good witness to them. You, Christian, will be a good witness to outsiders who hate your Jesus, who have no need for your Jesus. They'll look at your life and go, but their lifestyle demands respect. They work hard. They don't depend on anyone else. There's one distinction. Here's verse 13. But we don't want you to be uninformed brothers. He's very clearly talking to Christians. This is not a wide message to just anyone. Christians, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Do you see the distinction? You Christians ought to grieve one way. The others, those outside of Christ, ought to grieve a different way. 
He is setting up unequivocally that there are that there is one type of person here who's going to experience death one way, and there's another type of person over here that is going to experience a death a different way. Back to our earlier statements. How arrogant that you would say that. How dare you think you know that? Your guess is as good as mine. That's what they're saying, right? That's a lie. We've been told. We've been shown what happens after death. God has told us that everyone one day will face their maker. For some, it will be a terrifying experience. For others, it will literally be the best day of their existence up to that point. Paul got this idea from Jesus, who said really plainly, either you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or what? Depart from me, I never knew you. I just read this week about the wedding feast, that there will be people that, that he, Jesus tells the story of a guy who gets in and, and, and the, the master of the feast says, I don't know you, you're out. You don't have the proper clothes. Jesus is the robe that covers our sin. If we, if we aren't clothed in Jesus, we're out. Jesus drew a really hard line there. With Christ in life means that we are with him in death. Apart from Christ in life means we are apart from him in death. You see, death is not goodbye, but it's actually see you later, right? That's what the Bible is teaching us here. Whether you're dead or alive, you are going to meet Jesus in the air. Not shouting, long live the king, but in the utter realization, I live long, as in eternally, with the king. That's what I got in on. We're not just reunited with Christ, but the dead are reunited with their bodies. The souls remain awake. One of the things you can tell from this text is that Jesus is coming back with those who've fallen asleep. You can't be with someone if you aren't with them, right? So the language is saying that the souls remain awake. What's sleeping is the body. And again, if you've ever been around a, a I almost said a live body, we're all doing that right now, a dead body, there's just a whole lot of evidence. We've had dead bodies sitting right here in this church before. And when you look at that thing, you don't see grandma. You don't look at her and go, that's grandma. Grandma never looked quite just like that. If you touch grandma, that's not how grandma feels. That's not, that's not really who grandma is, right? That's this tent. That's this shell. That's this thing that we inhabited for a while. But at that point, it becomes crystal clear. There's more to us than this. So we have sleeping bodies that are reunited. But not just regular bodies, resurrected bodies. Just write down 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 talks a lot about this. Let me read just a portion. It says this, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Fair question. Here's how Paul writes back. You foolish person. Harsh. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. He goes on to say this, What is sown perishable is, is raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. Someone once quipped this, Being cremated is my last hope for a smoking hot body. That person must not be a Christian. You know why? If you're raised in Christ, you have a body that is unkillable. You have a body that's glorious. You have a body that's raised in power. And so these, these things that we look at, 
if, if you if you were to look at the glory and the and the majesty of a seed, and then look at the tree that that seed grows into, he's trying to draw that kind of comparison. What we see now here, any glory that we have here, and you, you just you can't even imagine. It's a different kind altogether. This this resurrected body. Well, the text also gets in the fact that there's going to be noise accompanying this great moment, a loud command, a voice of an archangel, a trumpet of God. Um, we are not going to sleep through this alarm clock, right, of Jesus waking the dead. It, it is going to come. It's going to be forceful. It's going to be dra- dramatic. But here's the kicker. It's going to be authoritative. Get up, Lazarus. Come out. Man, you and I could shout all day long. Nothing to happen. Jesus says the word, and the dead lived. Here's number four. Line number four is that people believe you can only grieve at death, but actually you can grieve with hope. Verse 13 is a powerful comfort to me personally. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Look down to the end of the passage, verses 17 and 18. We will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You know, truth is simply telling it like it is. And what you and I believe to be true has massive consequences. I believe that ice to be thick enough to hold the weight of my body and that of my family. That is either true or it's not. What I believe about that has dire consequences to how my day ends up as I step out onto that ice. I'm going to eat this plant in the wild because I believe that it's not poisonous. Again, whether I have a really good day the rest of the day or a terrible day is based on whether that's true or not. If a doctor misdiagnoses you and says you're clear and free of cancer, the way that you live in light of that truth would, would potentially really speed your demise. So it is with death. Believing God on this doesn't end all grief, but it changes our grief. It fundamentally changes how we grieve. Back in our story with Lazarus, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept, which is fascinating, because he was about to raise Jesus from his sleep. I believe that Jesus entered into our skin and walked as we did and actually modeled for us. It's okay to cry at a funeral. It's okay. In fact, it's normal. It's expected to weep at this enemy death. But he also wanted to show quite unequivocally, quite clearly, that death doesn't have the last word I do. Jesus wept. Parting is such sweet sorrow, but the sadness is for those of us who are left here. I know that the dead in Christ are just fine. I was thinking about what I might want on my tombstone, and I think this might be fitting. If I just had this, never better. Right? Because you can weep for yourself, but don't worry about me. I remember in those days with my dad, I've said this to the loved ones of people that I was friends with as well. They are just fine. They didn't need some ninth hour person who just goes, can we look for one shred of evidence that the Holy Spirit lived in this person? No, this person lived 
as God's son, as God's daughter. We're sure of that. He was with Christ in life. I guarantee you he's with Christ in death. Friends, don't let this be an inch, like an inch deep theology to you. Don't let it be bumper sticker theology where you kind of say these things, but they don't get deep down into your life. Live these things. Live these things in such a way. Take comfort and encouragement and then give it away. Isn't that what this text is saying? Here, you take this comfort and encouragement. Now you encourage other people with that. Remind one another of this. Why? Because we forget and we believe lies about death. We take on that which culture tells us. No one can know for sure. We don't really know if they're okay or not. Whether Christians live or die, we have nothing to fear because Jesus will come for us, uh, either with us or for us. Let me invite the band to come on up right now. You don't need to turn there, but on his way to speak life over Lazarus, Jesus meets the dead man's sister, Martha. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give it to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now listen to this. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Do you see where Martha's head went? It went to some point way out there in the future, right? Is Jesus saying, don't grieve now because somewhere way in the future good things are happening. Jesus brings it right into the moment. And here's what he says. Jesus said to her, I and the resurrection, and the life. Listen to this instruction. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her the most poignant question of all. He looks at her and he says, do you believe this? Friends, I ask that to you this morning. Do you believe this? You know in your heart of hearts whether that's a resounding yes, a flickering wick maybe, or an absolutely not. I believe this is the question for life and for death and for afterlife. Do you believe that those who believe in Jesus will never die? We are going to move into a time of communion. And in light of the text, in light of what we're thinking about, a passage of scripture came to mind where Paul is reminding this church about communion, this, this sacrament that Jesus left for us as a church to think on him and remember him. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you see the looking back component and the looking future component of that? That as we celebrate communion this morning, as we look back and remember the resurrection, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We're keeping focused on this reality. Jesus is coming back. This is not all there is. This is not all we are. So as we prepare our hearts, as we take the elements of communion, I want you to take them and think on them. This cross that we're going to sing about, this death is a substitute. He did this in our place. Because Jesus walked out of the grave, he's doing what leaders do. He went first and we get to follow. And that's what it means to have Jesus as your Lord this morning. Let me pray.
God, this morning as we hold the elements, as we sing these words, I pray that we wouldn't let life be business as usual. I pray that you would comfort, encourage, and instruct us even now.